one of the brilliant things about being a rookie and not knowing what you don't know is that you're asking your own questions, not asking everybody else's questions, and you're finding your own answers. We didn't have the depth of knowledge to scare ourselves off from the path that we were determining for ourselves, because if we had, we may not have gone down this route into a bourbon company. Welcome to Smart Rookie, where we shine a light on remarkable lives and careers defined by wildly winding paths rather than tidy straight lines. Join us as we speak with people who are fueled by wonder, grounded in humility, and perhaps most importantly, forever having fun. We're your hosts. I'm Elizabeth Tallerman. And I'm Chelsea Carlson. To all the smart rookies out there, welcome to our kitchen table. Let's dig in. Hi, everyone. We're so excited to have you here today. And I'd love to just start out with each of you introducing yourself so the people listening to the podcast can get to know you as individuals. Maybe, Victoria, you want to start? Ooh, pressure. <laughs> My name is Victoria Horn. I'm one of the co-founders of Boss Molly Bourbon. It came to Bourbon somewhat unexpectedly, but it's been an amazing ride, and we're so happy to talk about our journey with you today. And the question we're grilling all our guests with as the warm-up is, what's your favorite cookie? So I'll ask, what's your favorite cookie? Well, I think I put it in my bio that I'm a huge fan of Teat's Buttercrunch cookies. I'm a sucker for toffee. Although I just discovered this season that baking with Basmali bourbon kicks everything up a notch. So I'm going to have to write a letter to Tate's and let them know that Buttercrunch can only get better. I know Elizabeth's been, I don't know if have you started your experiments, the Basmali baking challenge? I've done one. It's not there yet. I know what I'm going to do. So I've got a few weeks to really perfect. I'm so curious. So far, I've tackled miso peanut butter cookies with some Basmali in them. And that's fantastic. And Actually, oatmeal raisin with basmali is delicious, too. So can't wait to hear what you're cooking up, Elizabeth. I've got to say, it's a little tough because we like our basmali neat in this household and giving anything up to mix it with anything. We have to take a beat, but I will do it. A sacrifice. And a little goes a long way in cookies. Very true. Very true. I say that like I bake. <laughs> it was convincing. I did bake cookies this year. I was proud of myself. I made brown sugar bourbon cookies, which were quite good. So all of us can learn new skills. All right. So Brandy, why don't you introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Brandy Bowles. I am a Kentucky native, and I've been in the publishing world for the last 20 years. I came to bourbon very organically through a family of huge bourbon lovers and champions. And my favorite cookie would probably be white chocolate macadamia nut. An excellent choice. I'm a white chocolate diehard. We're so excited to have Boss Malle sponsoring Smart Rookie. And it's for very specific reasons. Elizabeth did this monologue the other day about why she was so excited to have Boss Malle. So over to you. All right. So pardon me for just shoveling all these accolades on top of you. But I absolutely loved hearing your story. And what I love the most about the story of the founding of Boss Molly is that you are a bunch of women hanging out together, doing what you love to do. 
you're hanging out with friends, you're tasting whiskey, you might be playing a little poker, and something perks up in one of you. It tickles your brain, and you see this pattern. And this pattern is about Elijah and Pappy and Johnny and Jack, and none of you are them. You're all women, and you're saying, wait a minute, why is none of this by us? And maybe it's not exactly for us either. And you didn't let it lie. You said, we got to change this. We got to do something about this. So that kind of blows my mind because people sit around all the time and go, huh, look at that. But you did something. How on earth? The two of you are in publishing. Kate is in marketing and works in media. What? on earth possessed you? Or how did you work up the gumption to say, yeah, we can do this? I do think there's a certain personality type that is tempted by a challenge. And it did feel like a big challenge, but also a big learning opportunity. If you're going to dive into something, why not whiskey? So much fun. And so we thought, could we do this? Let's learn more about it. And what happened is in the process of learning, what would that even mean? We just fell further and further in love and further down the rabbit hole. Because then you're just thinking a lot about bourbon in ways you hadn't before. And then you're tasting everything differently with a different eye and a different nose. And everything is given a new light once you start asking questions. How does one start a bourbon company? And all of it was educational it was also really fun, but you get to a certain point where you're like, you start accumulating knowledge and your passion grows alongside that knowledge. But the knowledge is what gives you the faith to take that next step and then the next step. And the next thing you know, we were really doing it. I still wake up surprised sometimes <laughs> that this is where all of that led. But I think Brandy's description of a certain personality really rising to a challenge and wanting to learn, I think, is absolutely spot on, but it also convened with a perfect mix of time and place and a next step or stage for where the three of us, I think, I, I won't speak for Brandy and Kate, but certainly for myself, I was interested in taking on more. I'd hit a stride in my life that felt really comfortable, felt really knowledgeable and empowering. And I was looking for a challenge to bring that experience into. And to my chagrin, I thought of this as maybe a really fun hobby to start with. And it definitely has become so much more than that, for sure. Yeah. Well, it strikes me that you guys started a side hustle that's now a rocket ship on a launching pad ready for blast off. I mean, if I'm not mistaken, you're about a year into this and you've got pretty enviable distribution. So how does it feel when your side hustle might not be so far on the side? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Honestly, I'm grateful. I think that our ambitions were always at the forefront of our minds of what we wanted Boss Molly to do. And we've accomplished, I think, most of our goals for year one, which is a gift and a blessing and, and a result of a lot of hard work as well. But it feels different to have something that we built truly from scratch that was born out of a collective idea and ambition. But it's an actual 
product you can hold in your hands and drink and share and celebrate. I joke that this is my third child, but that's what it feels like. I have two children, actual human children. And in the same way that you are amazed at the life your children start to build on their own, that's what it feels like to watch Boss Molly out in the world, where anytime we stumble across a podcast or an interview or someone at a tasting who says they've heard of it, they've seen it, they've had it, they love it. That is mind-blowing every time. Like our baby's growing up and is out in the world activating new fans all the time. So that's a really interesting component of it is that, I mean, of course, we do a lot of work in promoting it and building the base, but the product itself does some of the work for us because it's a great product and people love it. It's taken on a life of its own. Right now, it feels so exciting. It's like, oh, you already know this thing and that's just going to continue to grow. So I think it's good to just acknowledge that we're in the time right now where that just feels so new and exciting, but it is, it's just going to keep growing from here. And when I look back on this year, it's kind of crazy to me that all of this has happened in just a year. Yeah. It seems to me you guys certainly were rookies at making a whiskey, but this is also a rookie partnership. Talk about that and what it takes to partner and to have that partnership work. I'd love to talk about that. I want to be an advocate for partnering with people on a passion project. I was listening to a podcast and this woman was sharing her experience about how she had a very negative partner experience. And she was like, you don't need a partner. You can go out there on your own. You don't need somebody to fill in the gap. And I heard it and I was like, oh, I'm glad I didn't hear that before. I think there's such power in the right partnership. We all have different backgrounds. We all have different experience. And when we all come together and we're collaborating, something magical can really happen. And it might not be exactly what you thought it was going to be before, but now you've just created something that's even more well-rounded. There's a lot to do when you're starting a business. So having three people as opposed to one definitely goes a long way in even just getting things done. I think to talk about what Kate was saying about filling in the gaps for each other, one of the things that I've learned about partnership is it is so important to really be able to acknowledge your strengths and weaknesses and for your partners to be very aware of that too. And so that you're helping fill in the cracks for each other here or there saying, look, I can take over this or Kate, you've got a really good eye with this and I don't feel as strong here. Can you lead? And having that ability to not only fill in for each other, but to combine all of our strengths together, I think has really propelled us forward to where we are in a way that, again, like Kate was saying, if I were doing the solo, I would still sort of be on the starting block, I think. As you're talking about what's happened in the last year and building this company that's a reaction to a vacuum that you felt, I'd love to know more about what did you do differently by design? What intentional choices did you make in order to build a different kind of brand, company, product, anything that you feel like we know that we're not a Jack John or a Jim? What does Molly feel like or act like? I mean, the product was the number one thing, and that was the number one thing we had to get right from the beginning. There is a lot of good bourbon out there, but there's so much variety and there are a lot of unexplored facets in the space. So we knew we wanted to do something that would feel somewhat our own. 
it wasn't just sourcing whiskey from the exact same distillery that many, 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 many brands source from that was almost indistinguishable from those. So we started, of course, by tasting everything. And one thing that stood out pretty quickly was that we all really loved weeded bourbons, which just means that there's wheat in the mash bill. So that became the first unanimous decision. And the second, which is kind of interesting and a little bit in the weeds with how you make whiskey, is we actually proof our liquid before it goes into the barrel for aging. So this is a very unique thing. There are other brands that do it, but it's uncommon. And we feel it just makes for a softer whiskey after the years in the barrel because you have that water interacting with the barrel and the alcohols. It feels more harmonious to us. So this was an intentional choice. There are lots of ways to do it, but most people only prove after, and we do both. And then the final piece of that for us was staving, because finished whiskey is always really fun and interesting, and we were getting into those and realizing we wanted to find a way to do something that was a Boss Molly thing, and that would be associated with our brand and distinguishable immediately. So we do a brandy stave finish. There's something really special about how you guys have been very intentional in all of this. And one of the things we noticed and we were talking about earlier today is how you prioritize flavor over proof. It seems like whiskeys and bourbons are kind of these muscle contests sometimes. And how alcoholic can your beverage be? And you guys have a slightly lower proof product, I think. Is that in favor of something? Is that by design? Elizabeth, I'll tell you, I've just come hot off the bourbon trail, which is an annual pilgrimage my family makes and that we adore. And you hit the nail on the head. The current trend right now is very high proof. People love something straight out at barrel strength, which can be up to 125, 127. We're really seeing a trend where consumers are, yes, having a contest to see what kind of proof, how high they can go in their tolerance. And I had the best time at a distillery that only lets you drink straight out of the barrel. Fantastic experience. But what we really wanted to do, as Brandy said, was the bourbon, the flavor is our first priority and our first foot forward. And since we are proofing into the barrel at a lower proof, we were actually in conversation as we were watching our baby kind of grow and develop and all of these flavors mature. We were loving it right at barrel proof. But of course, our barrel proof is about 100 or so. It comes out maybe a little hotter, 103. Once we had our finalized finish on that liquid, we knew that to be true to our mission to let the flavor shine, we needed to experiment with where it was going to sit on that proofing scale. And so we blind tasted every proof that we could between 80 and 100. And in that blind taste test, I think we surprised ourselves where we found that everybody was voting at that 90 mark, which we found that at 90, that flavor just allowed everything that we loved about our liquid to shine through. That brandy nose, this baking spice finish, the really deep butterscotches, caramels, those really light teasing notes of citrus all came out to play when we were at 90. And we wanted something that consumers would connect with and want to sip on all night long. And that's where we found ourselves enjoying it the most. 
we're not committed to a preconceived notion of what the consumers want in proofing. And we're not committed to a preconceived notion of what proof is, quote unquote, best for bourbon, because we all know that what's best for bourbon is where it tastes the best. Just to add to that, I think that we don't want to ever chase a trend. And one of the things for the brand overall is that we want it to be as open to as many people as possible. And doing a super high proof, while we enjoy that as well, it really, a lot of people who are getting new into the bourbon world, it's just, it's too much for people to start off with. So it's kind of nice being just a little bit higher than what they would expect for them to be, oh, actually, I love this. And then they can go above that in the future as well. But for us, it will always be coming down to what the flavor profile on the whiskey is and what we think it means. And I think what Kate's hitting on too is one of our core missions as well is aiming to bring everyone to the table. We wanted something that would appeal to aficionados as well as bourbon curious consumers. And we wanted it to be as open and friendly an experience for everyone, whether you've been drinking bourbon for 20 years or if this is your first sip. My new favorite term is bourbon curious. I wear that moniker very proudly. (laughs) And I love how both democratic and scientific your approach was to being very open-minded about, we're just going to test it. We're just going to try it and actually ask what tastes best. It was actually a blast, and you have never seen Victoria have more fun than when she unpacked the alcohol hydrometer and got to play scientist and make a lab in Kate's kitchen so that we could taste. It was amazing, and it was so much fun. How's the industry responding to Boss Molly? Do you have old boys going, oh, that's cute, or people saying this is fantastic? What's going on inside? It's a real mix. I mean, there are those gentlemen who see the bottle and say, oh, cute whiskey for girls. And they'd say, oh, a diet bourbon, which, you know, makes us roll our eyes. I was pleasantly surprised that we didn't get more people talking down to us or mansplaining away. People have been pretty welcoming, I would say. And I will say that we've only been on the market for a year, but this has been in development for many years. And those early reactions were several years ago. And it's pleasing to watch the conversation evolve. People are more willing to be open and have that conversation with us and a lot less reactionary than when we first started. So I think the overall community is growing and learning together, which is exactly the conversation that we wanted to jump into feet first and be a part of. So it's really gratifying that we're getting less and less of that reaction as time goes on, because it does herald that the conversation is shifting. And that's what we're here for. And bringing more of the bourbon curious into bourbon is only good for the industry, too. So creating more pathways in for people to be interested in this, to become fans is so cool and good for everyone. So it's very fun to hear. I'd love to hear if any of you have kind of favorite stories or memories of some of those good reactions you've had from people, maybe from those bourbon curious people that like, ah, bourbon's not for me, trying Boss Molly and maybe getting converted. I love to share that my mother-in-law, who is not a bourbon drinker at all, she was very much like rum and coke, and she loved a cocktail, but she was always a little intimidated with the whiskey, I think. She now makes amazing old fashions, and is such a boss molly evangelist, and I love seeing that. That's great. That's really fun. Yeah, I will say, until Boss Molly, there was no way I was going to drink bourbon neat. It wasn't my thing. And now we have special ice cube trays. I like one big round ice cube. 
two inches of basmali, and just a drizzle of Luxardo syrup. I don't need sweet vermouth. And that's my version of a slightly east of Manhattan. Oh, man, Elizabeth, you're going to make me one of those soon. Yes, I am, Victoria. I'm just laughing because Elizabeth very kindly let me stay at her apartment last year when I was visiting in New York. And I, I left her a bottle of scotch to say thank you. And she was like, thank you, but I don't really drink scotch. I'm like, oh, whoops, I just assumed. But maybe these days, boss Molly, what's your gateway? I might be stepping into brown liquor. <laughs> I started as a scotch drinker. So now I'm very curious about this bottle of scotch and whether Elizabeth will be pulled into its web. Oh, uh, it's a beautiful bottle of Oban, right? Yeah, I know it's a good scotch. I just need to learn to love peat. You'll get there. I was just thinking how in the culture I grew up in, in Kentucky, everyone drinks bourbon. It's, I guess, a bit cliche at this point, but it's actually the only state that men and women 100% equal in terms of the consumers who's actually buying the product. So in Kentucky, when you grow up, what you see is a lot of your elders drinking bourbon neat, but that's not where you start because you're a college student. You're drinking whiskey and Coke or something a little milder. And then maybe if you want to get fancy, you graduate up to cocktails. But once you fall down the rabbit hole into the neat bourbon world and you start tasting all the different flavors that's just right there in the spirit, you kind of can't go back. I love a cocktail, but there's nothing like tasting the spirit by itself first and pulling out all these layers of flavor that are there that it's like a very sophisticated experience akin to drinking wine and being able to think about the terroir or think about the mineral content or the grape. And we have the same thing with whiskey, where if you become very attuned to it and you're tasting, you can start to pull out, oh, this has a higher rye mash bill. This has a wheat mash bill. This one is older, been aged longer. There's all kinds of variables that you can actually determine with your tongue. And that's a really fun experience. But I, I just find that once you start drinking whiskey neat, you drink it differently and you think about it differently. And it's a lot of fun. So you guys are rookies at this. Talk to us about expertise and where that's come into play. Are there experts, either credentialed or otherwise, that have helped you along the way? Or how do you deal with the, wait a minute, we're rookies and we're going to make our mistakes forward. Maybe they're not mistakes. Maybe they're just doing it differently and gathering expertise. Can you talk a little bit about that? There was some gaps in learning how whiskey is made on a deep level. And all of that was very fun to try to fill in the holes in my knowledge. But beyond that, glassware and corks and a whole lot of regulatory hurdles and a distribution network that is really unlike many other consumer products. Starting a business that involves a supply chain. That was a real education journey. I'm somewhat glad we did have along the way a lot of wonderful people who gave us their time to jump on Zoom for an hour and we could pick their brain and sometimes just run and vet ideas past them to make sure that they were reasonable and we were on the right track. We really didn't do that with developing the actual bourbon, and I'm glad we didn't because I fear there would have been too much thumb on the scale. Everyone's tastes are so different, and had they said, well, higher proof is really what's trending, 
or it's going to be hard for you to make a weeded bourbon because it's less common, then I worry that we would have been scared off a bit. And we weren't because that is, frankly, our taste that's going to lead the charge in terms of making what Boss Molly actually is in the bottle. But all the rest of it, there was so much to learn. And there were a number of other spirits owners who did contribute their time to help us understand what would be needed. And of course, we hired a beverage alcohol attorney. And when it was time to do paperwork, uh, a lot of that is very labyrinthian. But we couldn't have done it without the help of many generous people along the way who were excited about what we were building and just there to answer questions and vet our ideas. I think one of the brilliant things about being a rookie and not knowing what you don't know is that you're asking your own questions, not asking everybody else's questions, and you're finding your own answers. And I think, like Brandy said, we didn't have the depth of knowledge to scare ourselves off from the path that we were determining for ourselves, because if we had, we may not have followed this path at all. We may not even have gone down this route into a bourbon company if we'd had too much input from people with years and years and years of background in this industry. So I think that's actually a real strength and blessing in disguise is this blissful unawareness of exactly what the challenges are going to be. We're finding out step by step. We're on this learning curve and we're solving it in the way that we need it to be solved, not according to template that's been scripted out time and again. It's very rare that you get asked a question where you know, well, this is it, of course. So you really become comfortable with, okay, I am not sure what the answer is here, but we're going to investigate in this area and then we're going to test something out. And we really had to take that approach with starting Box Molly together. And the important thing is that you're learning as you're going when you make it. Like It's okay to make mistakes as long as you're learning from them. There are times that you can look back and think, oh, I wish we would have come at this one thing from this other angle but we really wouldn't have had any way to know that until we did it. So as long as we're learning in that process and then taking those learnings into what we're doing in the future, it's the best thing that you can do. Between the three of you, I feel so excited by all of your answers because the conversation we're having with all our guests that are just people that are unsatisfied with doing things the same way and are unafraid of just jumping out and trying things and I don't know, more and more, I'm just feeling what you said about the blissful unawareness idea. You can get so much done when you are not aware at the very beginning of exactly how hard it's going to be, which is how I feel about this podcast, too. We're like, let's do a podcast. That would be fun, right? (laughs) A thousand hours later. But it's so, so fun to just actually make things happen. Every now and again at a tasting or an event, we'll meet someone in the industry who, you know, maybe they are a barrel specialist for a big brand or a sales rep. And they'll say, oh, how long have you guys been doing this? And they'll say, well, we've been developing it for six or seven years, but we've only been on the shelf for one year. And they'll say, well, what did you do before this? Of publishing. They're like, you never worked in spirits or liquor or alcohol sales? I'll say, no. And they're like, are you insane? There is that reaction sometimes where they're just amazed that someone could take that task of learning this whole industry, which has its own culture and language. It has its own do's and don'ts. And we are learning those in real time as we go with the product. So again, I'm lucky and glad that everything has worked out so well. The product's great. That helps. But it's the educational journey. There's nothing like it. And I cannot imagine any other opportunity in my life 
that would provide me with this much new input. It's so new. It's not anything like the other industry I worked in. And I mean, people are people. And so it's delightful. And I do use many of the same skills that I did in previous jobs. But the work is so different. The culture is so different. And it's developing new muscles all the time. So is there any rookie mistake that you guys have made that you can look back on now and go, oh, my gosh, I can't believe we did that? Or... Thank goodness we did that. Are there any that stand out that just have you guys looking at each other, rolling your eyes and laughing? When we created Boss Molly, we really labored over the copy because we care so much about marketing and the pros of this. And this was our introduction to consumers. So we really spent a long time getting the verbiage right. And it's not too much room. You're just talking about a label on the back so we have a sentence in the copy that reads, Our name, Boss Molly, is an homage to what ranchers call the tough female mules that blaze the trail to get shit done. And like them, she's got some kit. There was another piece of copy that is no longer on here that used to say, Damn good bourbon. And when we hired our alcohol beverage attorney to help us review this label before we submitted it to TTB, which is Trade Tobacco and Firearms Unit of the Federal Government, she said there is still a law in the books that prohibits any offensive language and that to increase our odds of acceptance, we should eliminate all curse words on the label. And as silly as this sounds, we've tried, but we could not think of a better phrase than blaze the trail to get shit done because that just says it. So, I mean, so many versions of that copy and nothing really nailed it. And so we did take off damn good bourbon, which it's still damn good bourbon. It just no longer says that on the label. And we left in the other curse word. Well, guess what? We submit the label. We have famously been told by so many brand owners that TTB will find a reason to reject you, that it is a incredibly tough bar to clear to get the government to approve your label because there's so many restrictions on everything from font size to color to where on the label things go and how it's communicated. And so we were very nervous. We ended up getting rejected, of course, several times over inane things that you would never expect, like the size of the font. And no one cared a lick about the curse words. Not one lick. I mean, we spent weeks trying to rewrite this copy. But that may be unique to us of debating whether or not to curse on a bottle. But I, I have a feeling that it's not. Well, I think you picked the right phrase because damn good bourbon is just tooting your own horn. But trailblazing and getting shit done is exactly what you did to bring this to market. So congratulations. I'm thrilled. That's amazing. And you're blazing trails for others to swear on their labels, too. They're going to pick that up and be like, damn, why didn't we put a swear word on our bottle? That's right. What does being a smart rookie mean to you? And is that different than being a rookie? I think being a smart rookie, a lot about that is follow through, which might sound kind of counterintuitive. But one of our rookie moments, I think, was just not knowing how incredibly difficult and all of the steps to get this even just into the market before we even get wide distribution. But we moved forward with it and we took one thing at a time and we would get it done and then go on to the next thing. A lot of feedback that I would hear from people is, I think this is so cool. I'm so impressed that you actually did it. I've talked to my friends about like, we should do this 
thing. But then without that follow through, nothing's going to happen. So you have to have that smart rookie quality of it's not just an idea. You have to figure out a way to execute. Yeah. And I think Kate said it so wonderfully, too, when she was talking about just the ability to find out the answers to what you don't know. We're not going to be experts immediately at everything. And I think being a smart rookie is acknowledging that you're a rookie, right? (laughs) And that you are going to have to learn as you go along. And that learning requires asking those questions, figuring it out, finding your support network, really getting engaged with what you're doing so that you can gut check that you're on the right course and the ability to course correct when you find yourself straying a little bit, as all rookies will, right? So I think that's really what the smart brings to that rookie phrase. And it's a natural ability for some people and it's an ability other people can develop. And I think as we go along, we're both naturally developing our talent in that direction together. And I'm So grateful to these two women for their partnership in this and that we could create something so special together. It's it's a true joy. Our last question touches on sustainability. It doesn't surprise us that a female-owned company is not only focused on amazing flavor and producing an exceptional product, but we know that you guys have a sustainability story and we wanted to hear a bit about that. So when we decided to make a bourbon, one of the key requirements for bourbon that makes it special is that it must always be aged in a new oak barrel. And it did occur to us that all of these new oak barrels must come from somewhere. So we've done our research and determined that for every, I think it's every three barrels is basically one white tree. And so we decided that it would be very important to us to, especially in the world we live in, to try to account for some of that loss. And so we're donating money back to the National Forest Foundation, which, of course, is great for the earth and great for all of us, also great for the continued health of the bourbon industry. That's great. That's amazing. And what is your barrel made out of? Did you say white oak? Yeah, new American white oak. Do all bourbons age in the same kind of barrel? Yes, all bourbons by law must be aged in a new oak barrel. So that consumes quite a lot of lumber, if you can imagine. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. I do have a few friends that try to get some of those smaller barrels that have had bourbon in them, and they use them to barrel age their Negronis. So that's just one of my bucket list things is to have my own mini barrel so I can have barrel aged Negronis. But actually, I'd probably barrel age my Boulevardiers because I like Campari with bourbon. Yeah, I mean, the the barrels get a lot of use. It's not that there is waste necessarily because the barrels are reused for other purposes. They're often resold for aging other spirits, aging beer. Uh, There are many, many uses. People make furniture out of them. It's not like they just go in a heap, but we love trees and we want to support nature and we want to support everything that makes whiskey possible. So in my house, we have a cocktail almost every night before dinner and I had never heard of Boss Molly before my friend Kelly Hoey introduced me to it. And then Boss Molly came to our 
live recording and they were generous enough to bring some cocktails. And I was so nervous that night. I was like, forget the cocktail, just pour me a little bourbon. And I thought I was going to throw back a good, sharp, hard hitting whiskey. And it was this smooth, velvet, caramely, citrusy deliciousness. And I'm like, oh, wait a minute. Could you pour me a little more of that? And then, of course, I got a bottle for myself. And now my favorite thing, my favorite thing beyond any cocktail that Steve mixes, and they're pretty good, is two inches of Boss Molly, a beautiful, round, big globe of ice, and the tiniest drizzle of Luxardo Jerry Juice. It's my perfect drink. That just is the break between the day and the night, between work and play, or play one and play two. Yep, that's it for me. That's my boss, Molly. I felt like I was there. I felt the ice fall clink on the bottom of the class. I saw the syrup drizzle. It was a whole experience. It's a beautiful color, too. And when you put that really dark, purpley, cherry drizzle on top and just let it swirl around, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. But what I love most of all is, I don't know, I get this sense, even though they're very refined and articulate women, it's like the, fuck you. I don't care how you do this. We are going to make a bourbon that we want to drink. We're going to make a bourbon that everyone wants to drink. We're going to make a bourbon differently. These women making things are making it so that everybody can get into it. They're not making it for women. They're making it for everyone, which is different than saying we're going to make something that's hard to get into or punches you in the face or you have to prove your manhood to cross the threshold to this drink. They're doing the opposite. And I think that's delightful. And I really do think that the bourbon industry should be writing them a big giant thank you card because a world with more bourbon drinkers is just better for them. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, classically, whenever I've started a project that has an alcohol component, you'll learn that women drink vodka. And it was even hard to get women to drink vodka, so they diluted vodka inside a seltzer and they call it whatever. And that's, first of all, not drinking. Second of all, vodka, classically, the best vodka has no flavor. It's distilled five times or three times or 10 times so that it doesn't have flavor. You can't taste a vodka and say, oh, that's made out of winter wheat. No, that's made out of potatoes. No, that's because it's just alcohol. Now, I say that and I'm a vodka martini lover, but you make a bourbon, you're talking about flavor. Or you make a bourbon and you're talking about a punch in the face. And you can have a strong drink with a beautiful flavor. And I love that they're doing that too. And a woman doesn't need a woman's bourbon. People need bourbon that tastes great. And these guys are doing that. I love that you've picked up on that, Chelsea. I didn't get all the way to asking this question, but I've been thinking about it. We brought up women's colleges in our Slack chat a while ago. And Gabby, our producer, is also a product of a women's college. And because I was trying to suss out because there are things, that, there are some things that are visible and obvious. And you're like, ah, this is a place for women. And there are other things that are sort of invisible and under the surface that we're 
design decisions or these experiments that they did or all of these moments along the way where they made choices that felt right to them, that made sense to them, that were scientific and democratic and fair and balanced and real and based on quality and not on ego, that maybe you can't pinpoint that exactly, but you can feel it somehow in the end results, the thing in the bottle. What really struck me too was that this is not an overnight success. Now they've been in the market for a year and have achieved great things in one year, but it took them years to get to the product that they wanted. So the sprint wasn't making the product that they labored over. The sprints in bringing it to market. And I think this thing is taking off because of its quality, because it's so special. The piece that I loved and made me obsessed with all of them, but particularly Victoria's when she was talking about like this came at the perfect time because I had hit a comfortable stride. And it's so funny to think about because so many people are like, comfortable stride, that's what I want. I would love to be in a comfortable stride. But she hit on that thing that I think is the type of person they're talking about and we're trying to find, which is like people who hit a comfortable stride and are like, hey, that was cool for two steps. What am I doing now? So people that hit something comfortable and are ready for the next thing are people I'm obsessed with. I love to see it. I keep thinking that as I hit my sixth decade, this is where I do hit my comfortable stride and I kind of chill and I bask in the glory of all the younger people that I've taught or that come to play in our collaborative. And instead, I'm doing this. I'm rookieing my first season of podcasts. And it's not that it's hard, but it certainly gets my adrenaline pumping and I'm no adrenaline junkie. And I couldn't eat all morning because we were going to do an interview with one of my friends who also happens to be a kind of famous person. And it's unbelievable that you can work for 40 years and still get super nervous when you're about to talk to somebody you've talked to more than a dozen times, but has written 21 books and has the most famous blog out there. And this rookie thing is real. It doesn't matter how much you've done, how long you've worked, taking on a challenge, trying to do something you haven't perfected yet. It's hard. It takes courage. It's really fun. And then some days you go, what am I doing? And why am I doing this to myself? But it's really fun to talk about at cocktail parties, too. We started this out like, oh, it's a scientific experiment. What are we going to find? And it's so fun to see what is bubbling to the surface and what we keep finding over and over again. That Yeah, being a rookie is kind of a superpower if you do it the smart way because you blindly and delightfully, this blissful unawareness idea, you wander into things with this sense that, of course, I could do it, that is kind of irreplaceable. You could spend a, a lot of money on mentorships and therapy and not get to that level of confidence that you have naturally by just not knowing how hard something's going to be. I also reflect back on two things that came up, that being a rookie is an act of optimism. You are doubling down on a positive future. And being a rookie is being generative because you're going to do it wrong seven times before you do it right. And one of those wrongs may be more right than anybody else is right. 
And I really love that possibility. We'd love to hear what you observed in this episode. What did this episode leave you wondering about? What did you observe and what was said or left unsaid? Leave us a voice memo on the smartrookiepodcast.com, DM us on Instagram, or send us an email, smartrookie at thenucleusgroup.com. If you like what you heard today, please support us, subscribe for more, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks. This episode of Smart Rookie is brought to you by brand and strategy collaborative, The Nucleus Group, with special thanks to our first season sponsor, Boss Molly Bourbon. Episode art is by Chelsea Carlson, theme music by Ashley Bradford, audio engineering by Sam Nash, and executive production by me, Gabriela Costa. See you next time.